0: Welcome to Ms. Lyric's Poetry Outlaws, a show about all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Good morning again, outlaws of winter. So today I'm going to do this podcast in two parts. The first part is going to be chat about this and that, a few things that have happened since the last podcast or the podcast before, a few reader responses and reactions. And then part two is going to be uh, my openers series, the beginning of that, which is going to feature me opening at random uh, books of essays, theory, criticism, poetics that I have in my collection and that I have reread multiple times. And I will aim to respond to them in some way, react to them, uh, consider them over the time that I've been reading them, how things have changed. And then of course, I will end with a poem and this poem is also randomly selected, and may or may not have something to do with the selection from the Book of Poetics. So let's see what happens. I like to keep that uh, frisson of the mysterious and not everything being scripted, uh, me not always knowing what I'm doing because that's the way I write poetry as well. Obviously, I've honed my craft and technique over time, but I never know how I'm going to end a poem and that to me is super important. I think if you know, and even the YA novel I'm writing, I really only have the vaguest sketching out of what might occur. And as I'm writing, frequently I have epiphanies and much is revealed in process. So first of all, I have to say that after uh, it was just super apropos that following my 25th anniversary episode podcast that I received in the mail my very, very first royalty check after 25 years, and it happens to be $25.30. So this is after, uh, you know, 15 books, uh, trade books, other chapbooks and so forth, but they don't count when it comes to royalties. Uh, Even a couple of my books don't count when it comes to royalties, because my first book, Somatic, um, well, they basically got me to buy out, Excel Editions got me to buy out the last 200 copies years and years and years ago, after I settled with them through the writers union for back uh, payment, um, because they hadn't paid me any royalties at all. So I guess that was my very first royalty check. But that was a whole different issue. Because I hadn't gotten an advance. And I also didn't get an advance from Caitlin Press for the Day of the Dead. So I got a initial royalty from that publication, but nothing since. So may have to look into that at some point. Also, yeah, so we have books that don't get advances and that thus don't get royalty checks. But this is from Walsak and Wynne, who have been my longest term and most faithful publishers. And I believe that this is four of my books, uh, of the what, seven, eight books I have with them. That finally paid off their advance, and thus were eligible for royalties and I had some royalties coming to me last year, but most presses won't produce checks uh, for under twenty dollars, which makes a lot of sense. I recently got a check from uh, the Anagonish Review who I've been publishing with since the mid nineties, and it was for ten dollars and it, that was for two poems and that made me consider also you know how things have have changed because i do recall getting a check from them for $40 sometime back in the 90s or 2000s. Uh, So a lot of um, our ability to make a living off, you know, publishing our poems and getting royalties from our books because they're such a glut. Uh, And people don't often buy books of poetry. They, you know, they want to write them more than they want to read them or support the poets, which is always intriguing to me what comes around goes around, I've always felt. Uh, So and then, you know, there's so many more literary magazines, but so few of them pay now or what they pay is an absolute pittance. Uh, But there's way more contests, of course, that have the supposed big bucks and um, biomaterial that you can, uh, you know, list all your glorious accomplishments with. I was thinking about that in terms of bios as well i was re- i 'm reading a, an anthology right now uh, from the states about um, you know it 's all poets showing their poems and then talking about how they wrote these poems and ninety nine percent literally uh, of these bios say that the poet is a teacher now this has become way more common than it used to be. Only one of these poets is a physician and it just it just makes poetry seem like this very closed, you know, suffocating clique. I mean, I love to teach, but I also do lots of other things and I certainly wouldn't want that to be paramount in my bio because I think that you have so um so many important experiences in doing other types of jobs and, you know, traveling and of volunteering, and just, just all these other things that feed into your art in a way that that's more diverse than just saying, hey, I teach in this university, and I won all these prizes. Uh, it gets a little bit snoozy. Okay, um, I'm reading, again, Better Living Through Criticism by A.O. Scott. And there's a, a little a set of song lyrics he quotes in here by the folk singer Gillian Welch. Kind of gets to the heart of the issue. She says, everything is free now. That's what they say. Everything I've ever done, gotta give it away. Someone's hit the big score. they figured it out. They were gonna do it anyway, even if it doesn't pay. Well, you know, I think a lot of people might do a lot of things uh, for no pay because they enjoy it so much and it's, you know, the core of their being. But at the same time, Why shouldn't they be able to make a living from it and, uh, you know, exist with dignity and, uh, you know, fierce, fierce uh, presence and energy in the world because they feel that they're, you know, I I often when I was younger, I would I would kind of envy my my doctor brother and my lawyer brother because I thought, you know, they're both doing things they really want to do, and they know that society will give them a good living as a result. Whereas I've always known that society is not going to give me a good living. So I'm going to have to split myself in multiple parts to try to cobble together my bits and pieces, which is also a kind of cool way to be in the world. But it means that you don't have the same type of intensity sometimes to put towards your art in the way that, you know, a doctor can put towards medicine, or a lawyer can put towards, you know, their legal life. So There's something in that, you know, we don't need to shortchange our arts more than we already are. We need to do the exact opposite. We need to find more ways of saying, hey, I actually do listen to you and and see you and, you know, experience all the emotions and, uh, you know, deepen realities of the world through you. So why shouldn't you be able to make a living as a result and not just a life? So I have had a few reader responses. Um, I love these, of course. Uh, Why wouldn't I? So if you feel like replying, you can always email me, you can send me a a messenger message, you can do what uh, Karen Mo often does. I'll have to shout out to her. I can't play any of her um, responses. But She records in the Anchor voice message system to give me feedback on uh, certain episodes, and they're usually very jolly and full of laughter and insightful reactions. So that's always glorious. Okay, so uh, Kat Cameron, she wrote to me via email to say, I enjoyed your podcast about 25 years in Canadian publishing, although it was a bit depressing to hear how much has changed for reading and tours. Oh, Absolutely, it's a little depressing. Um, we have to rejig uh, so much of you know who we are and how we do things, and try to still find ways in order to engage through community um, and and bring our books into the world, our poetry, you know, across Canada without um, going totally broke or falling into the pit of chagrin. So and then we have uh, Catherine Bitney, who, let's see if I can find it on messenger here. She wrote to me about my last episode on Diana Brebner. She said, thanks for the Brebner homage. I did know her not deeply or well, but we did exchange letters for a bit. Yes, real letters. Yeah, a lot of poets used to do that. Um, the poet I lived with for many years Uh, and actually married. Uh, He used to write letters all the time to multiple Canadian poets, um, sometimes to get something from them like money, but also just to interact with them and engage with them on on many aspects of, of poetics. He used to even write to the American poet Donald Hall. So Bitney continues, I thought she was heading well into her art and loved her determined freedom of subject, style, and her insights. Nice to see she is not forgotten. Yes, it's crucial. Let's not forget the Canadian poets that came before us, all the poets that came before us, and find time now and again to return to their work, to see how their work connects to ours or to other poets we enjoy reading, and to keep them alive in the world. My gosh, first of all, I have to say that when you reopen a book of, well, any kind of book, but I often use books as storage devices for various knickknacks and objects and bits and pieces of paper. And, you know, it could be anything from a receipt to a photograph. You know, I just found a tiny little birthday card from, you know, my Nana and photographs of family, that's stuck in this book, Madness, Rack and Honey, Collected Lectures by Mary Rufle, Rufle, Ruffle? Not really sure how to pronounce her last name. But at any rate, that's always this extra moment when I open up a book that I, you know, I've read many times, but I haven't read it for a long time. And here I am opening it again, leafing through it, and finding not only these, you know, incredible insights and Um, delightful moments of prose, but also, or poetry, as the case may be my favorite idiom. Um, But also these, these time capsules of, you know, where I was when I read it, uh, over the many times that I've read it, you know, what did I insert in the book this time? Uh, Does it show the the date that I read it? Does it show the mind space I was in when I read it? Um, and usually brings, you know, a smile to my face or, you know, a a, a tear to my eye sometimes um, in these moments of discovery. So Madness, Rack and Honey, I'm sure a lot of you have have read it. Uh, It's really her absolute best collection, I believe. It came out in 2012. And it's a compilation of her lectures to poetry graduate students done over the course of 15 years. It says collected here for the first time, these lectures include poetry in the moon, someone reading a book as a sign of order in the world, and lectures I will never give. Intellectually virtuosic, instructive, and experiential. It resists definition. It does. It demands an utter and utterly pleasurable immersion. I wholly agree. And there's uh, there's a few quotes from critics. Uh, the Kenyon Review says, No writer I know of comes close to even trying to articulate the weird magic of poetry as Rufly does. She acknowledges and celebrates the odd mystery and mysticism of the act. <clears throat> it's unpredictable, charming, and outright funny, says Publishers Weekly. And San Fran Examiner says, It's self-deprecating but illuminating. So... It's, it's absolutely, uh, you know, <laughs> Matthew Dickman calls it a desert island book. And that's true, too, because, you know, you can truthfully reread this book like hundreds of times and you'll find something new in it every single time. Those are text dinging on my computer. Uh, all right. I'm closing the laptop now so we won't hear such things anymore to interrupt our discussion. So I pulled this off my shelf and I opened randomly to a spot. And that is the beginning of her lecture called On Fear. And I noticed that the first paragraph, part of the first paragraph, is outlined in a red pen bracket. And I was thinking about how, uh, you know, working with Susan Zimmerman, how we were talking the other day about marking up books and what to do about that. And she wisely and amazingly keeps two copies of each book she reads so that she can mark one up with impunity, and then have another clean copy. Um, I have not been so wise. So I mean, I don't mind these brackets and parentheses and things like that. But at times, as I was also noting, I have marked it up. The book so badly. And this is usually in my early days of uh, starting college and so forth in my early 20s, when I thought that I had to write everything down. And I mean, my, my journals at the time were absolutely voluminous. And I, you know, it's embarrassing, of course, to look back on some of your what you thought were insightful notes. Like, this part rhymes, uh, you know, or this symbolizes death, things like that. So I did that to my HD collected poems. Uh, In particular, I was trying to reread it lately. And there's a there's a whole bunch of pieces uh, that I I can't reread because there's too many uh, silly comments uh, in the margins. So there you have it. Um, You might not want to do that in such copious fashion. So let's see what Mary Rufley has to say at the beginning of On Fear. She says, I suppose as a poet, among my fears can be counted the deep-seated uneasiness surrounding the possibility that one day it will be revealed that I consecrated my life to an imbecility. Part of what I mean, what I think I mean by imbecility is, she has this in italics, something intrinsically unnecessary and superfluous and thereby unintentionally cruel. Now, right away, I'm thinking, would a male poet ever think this? I mean, like a female poet seems to more often. I mean, I think there's this notion that we should be somehow embarrassed or humiliated by being poets in the world in general. And perhaps it's, you know, still somewhat seen as emasculating in some way for a man to claim he's a poet. Um, because of the notion that poetry is about emotions and that's feminized still. Uh, all that's just so absurd. But this sense that unintentionally cruel. So I think a lot of that has to do with the carving out of time and the passion uh, for writing that can lead you to make choices and decisions in your life to you know either not have children or to uh, you know have children but maybe have them raised more in the like village fashion, or you know to not perhaps make as much money as you could because you need more space and time to create your art um you know doing things that you know maybe you're not going to do the dishes today because you're going to make art instead so i think there there's more guilt and shame that still weighs women down that way in terms of their decision to live a uh, fiercely creative life um so you know i i don't know i mean maybe no i I just can't I just can't rest with that that notion that I've consecrated my life to an imbecility the word imbecility talk about harsh and cruel um you know definitely I've consecrated my life to uh, an art that is has a rarity associated with it despite the glut um definitely a lot of uh incomprehension or misunderstanding uh confusion um you know stereotypes, and so forth, or utter dismissal. But the act itself being imbecilic? Mm, no, I mean, I. but then, you know, I'm obsessed. I, 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 I don't understand how making any art in the world could be considered imbecilic. I mean, it's absolutely the foundation of true existence, as, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, but what she says about, you know, fearfulness. She talks at length about it. This essay is, you know, 20 plus pages. And she says at the end, what has life taught me? I am much less afraid than I ever was in my youth of everything. That is a fact. At the same time, I feel more afraid than ever. And the two I can assure you are not opposed, but inextricably linked. So I find that fascinating, because, you know, I'm really understanding that more now than I ever did in my 20s, 30s, and so forth. Because, you know, as you get older, you do feel more fear about certain things. And it's almost, you know, a contradiction. It's it's really ironic, because, you know, you get closer to death, you should be actually less afraid of doing things that are risky, and that could lead to you dying, say, but you actually become more afraid of, you know, riding on the back of a fast motorcycle or um, skydiving or, you know, getting a virus or what have you. Um, But at the same time, you're definitely freer from fear in the sense of how people perceive you and your work. And this comes as a series of multiple epiphanies. Um, Just a few months ago, I finally decided I was going to give up film and I was going to dedicate myself wholly to the genres I'm writing and to doing my smatterings of teaching and editing and so forth to make a living and I wasn't going to worry about uh, other things that I would felt anxious about um, how people would feel about my decision. Um, you know, how much money I make. I'm never really worried about that very much. But, you know, uh, it, it does get harder in some ways and also easier in other ways. And I truly do think, and I, I've always said this, that we need to be Unyielding. We need to be as fearless as we possibly can be to expose ourselves to experiences in existence and not think we can wrap ourselves in cotton wool and, you know, bubbles and, and, and stay all immune and uh, in some kind of strange purity because that way we're not going to feed our senses and our emotions and our abilities in a way that is as full and vast as they possibly can be. Okay, ramble over. I'm going to read a poem by Francis Boyle from Openwork Work and Limestone that I came across and it's called Murmuration. I'm in free fall, nearly dizzy, as I watch flocks of birds bend in waves like molecules. Murmuration as veil, as tilted bowl, a great wing made of wings and bodies funneling sky into blue-black awe. A blossom, blooming starburst pulse, wonder turns to joy in such folding and unfolding. Aerobatic origami, the cries and percussion of pummeled air smoothed into edges, the fall and rise a singing synchronicity. And they're wheeling a world word of beauty, of praise. Sheer longing to swirl like smoke and fly, my witnessing a tumbling, rolling boil of birds. Language shrill, ethereal, resounds inside my chest, startling my heart alive. You've been listening to Miss Lyric's Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce, word musicians.